Welcome back to another edition of the Draft Board Podcast, Blue Wire's official NFL draft and college football podcast. I am your host, Jordan Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at JReedNFL. That's at J-R-E-I-D NFL. And the NFL draft is officially in the books. And I know it was a long three-day stretch, but we officially made it. Some NFL fan bases are happy, while other teams' fan bases, not so much. And I'll have a run-through of every single draft class eventually. We have all summer to get through every single draft class. But there is something that I do want to address. And one of the main topics that we are going to get to today is what I like to call fit versus perception. And what I mean by that is every team doesn't have a universal draft board. There are some teams that have or limit their draft board to 175 total players. I think that's been the median for the most part, while some teams do have up to 200 players on their actual draft board. But every player that's in the draft is not going to be on every team's final draft board. So, for example, you have to take into account Some teams are not going to see guys as fits. Like, just going back to last year, every team didn't have Lamar Jackson on their board just because he's not going to be a team fit or positional fit for every team. But the Baltimore Ravens altered that path, and they saw that he was a fit in their run-first oriented centric offense. And that's just a prime example. But sticking to the topic of this draft and starting at the top at the number four overall selection, and that's Cleveland Farrell with the Oakland Raiders. And that draft pick really came as a huge surprise to a lot of people because some people were saying that he didn't deserve to go that high. That high. He just wasn't worthy of being a top selection just because of some of the bend issues and the athleticism issues that he wasn't able to show because he was nursing a toe injury during the combine and he ultimately didn't get to perform in Clemson's Pro Day. But something you have to understand with Mike Mayock is that he's always going to take the safe, high-floor, and mature type of prospect. And with Cleveland Farrell, that's exactly what you're getting in a prospect of his stature. He's not, he probably doesn't possess the upside or pass rushing upside that some of the other prospects like a Brian Burns or Nick Bosa or Quentin Williams or any other pass rushing prospects in this class. But you know that he's going to come in and be a day one contributor because he's been a three-year starter at Clemson. He's been extremely productive, the reigning ACC Defensive Player of the Year. So he has the accolades and the stats to back up what he potentially can produce. And stats aren't always everything with edge rushers. But with Cleveland Farrell, you know exactly what you're getting as soon as you turned in his draft card with the number four overall selection. And that's exactly what exemplified really the Raiders draft class as a whole and then just going down the list Josh Jacobs Jonathan Abram even a Hunter Renfro and Trayvon Mullen to an extent all of these guys have plenty of college experience they are very mature they are high floor and safe type of prospects that have had some type of statistical production while they were with their college program so that's exactly what I'm talking about with some of these prospects really fitting the team and just the perception that some of these teams really are giving off. And I think that really it, I think that really was exhibited throughout a lot of classes in this entire draft. And the Raiders weren't the only team. There's going to be a bunch of teams that I do eventually get to. Just highlighting some of the things going down the list. The Houston Texans were another team that really exemplified this type of perception that they were trying to give off. And the prospects that they selected really were huge fits for them. Starting off at the top with Titus Howard. And Houston's mold has always been they want to take the athletic guys that possess upside. So with Titus Howard, Max Sharping, 
Kahali Warren, those were basic examples of fitting this perception that they did give off of the athletic guys that maybe have not been playing their positions for a very long time, but they have that upside that they're looking for, and that's exactly what you're getting with Titus Howard, a guy that was a former quarterback, and he transitioned to tight end, and then what happened with that situation was that Alabama State ultimately suffered some injuries during his first year there, and he had transitioned to right tackle. And then he just fell into a situation where he ended up having to stay there because of the injuries, and it ended up, it ended up working out for him. And he has a really interesting story. That's not even the half of what he went through during his time there with the Hornets. But the Texans felt that he has the athletic profile that they're looking for, and he also possesses the upside that they're looking for at the position. But he may not be ready right away, but he really has no choice being on that Houston Texans offensive line because they are just starved for talent. And they're going to need Howard to step in right away along with Sharping. So it really is a trial by fire with these prospects that they have selected. Kahali Warren is another prospect that they are going to put in the put into the fire right away and they're not going to be hesitant about that just because that's just how Houston rolls and that's how they want these guys they want the athletic guys with this upside Titus Howard is a great example of that because he has the athletic profile that you're looking for and he is very raw let me say that and he's going to have some bumps and bruises along the way that's just what's going to come with Titus Howard he is not ready to start right away but the Houston Texans feel just that they can put him out there right away and they want him to learn on the fly and I know that is a bit unfair to Deshaun Watson but that's just how the Texans roll and I thought their draft as a whole really exemplified this perception that they're wanting to get off that they're wanting to give off and the fit of their draft class throughout really satisfied that need that they were looking for. And for as much criticism as they caught following the first night of the draft, I thought the New York Giants put together a really good draft class. And I know the Daniel Jones selection and the Dexter Lawrence draft picks, the, their very first two selections, caught a lot of criticism. But the middle, I thought they did really well with DeAndre Baker, O'Shane Zimenez, Julian Love, Ryan Connolly, and Darius Slade, and also Corey Ballantyne. I thought they finished the draft very strong, and I know Dave Gettleman gets a lot of undue just for some of the decisions that he did make over the offseason, but we have to understand his comfort zone with the Daniel Jones selection. And the one thing that I did not like that Dave Gettleman did was that he tried to come out and justify the Daniel Jones selection by saying that other teams after them, there reportedly were two other, other teams after the Giants that were going to select Daniel Jones. The biggest problem that I had with that is just come out and say that he is your guy, if that's what you believe, especially with the number six overall selection. That's something that you have to back up because this is a guy you essentially stamped your resume with and your tenure with the New York Giants because he is going to be the heir apparent to Eli Manning, no matter what he says. And this draft pick is going to follow him throughout the duration of his career and his tenure with the New York Giants because you invest a top 10 selection in a quarterback. So he essentially is your guy. So with Daniel Jones, you have to claim that. And that's something that I didn't necessarily agree with that he did in his post-draft press conference. And he trying to he kind of was trying to justify the selection as opposed to really defending himself and coming out and defending Daniel Jones and just saying and standing on the table that he is his guy. Now, with the Daniel Jones selection, we have to really understand why the Giants made that selection. And yes, it's a, it was a little bit earlier than I would have expected and for my comfort. But a lot 
lot of people, big media people especially, have been linking Daniel Jones to the New York Giants because Eli Manning and Jones have a previous relationship going back to the Eli Manning passing camps, or the Manning passing camps, I should say, in previous years. They share the same agent, and they have a bunch of similar mannerisms in that they are laid-back personalities that just show up to the game and play, and then they just go home. That's just how their personalities are, and that's exactly who Eli Manning is and is very similar to Daniel Jones, and they both have had a previous working relationship, so they both know each other, and I think that was a huge reason why they ended up taking him that high. Just some of those similar characteristics, mannerisms, personality, and also playing style because we all know that Daniel Jones is going to have to have some weapons in order to succeed, even though he didn't get a lot of help at Duke. Now transitioning to the New York Giants, he has that plethora of weapons on the perimeter, starting with Saquon Barkley, Sterling Shepard, Evan Ingram. The list goes on and on. The lack of weapons with the Giants is not true at all. They have plenty of weapons to where Daniel Jones could step in right away and succeed. It's just a matter of matching him with the team's play calling, and I think they have a terrific play caller in Pat Shermer. He's a guy that I think is one of the better play callers in the NFL once he's able to get all of the working parts in there. It's just a matter of them keeping Daniel Jones on schedule. That's the biggest thing about Daniel Jones. When things go off the rails or when he's faced with a lot of pressure, I think that's where he does get a little bit antsy in the pocket, and his athleticism is much better than what is given credit for. I do want to say that. And the Ryan Tannehill comps, I think they are spot on. Now, I think he has a bit more upside than what Tannehill did show coming out of Texas A&M but I think he's going into a really good situation with a with a good play caller with a good amount of weapons in order to succeed around him and also they've built up this offensive line really good and they still have a question at right tackle we still don't know who's going to be the right tackle there Chad Wheeler is probably going to be the guy that does take over there but you have Nate Solder Will Hernandez, and they have done even the trade for Kevin Zeitler. So they've had a really good offseason. It's just a matter of when they want to insert Daniel Jones and how are they going to handle the backlash associated with him officially being the heir apparent to Eli Manning, and when do you, when do you officially make the switch? That's always the biggest question, turning over a new leaf with the quarterback, and I think with the New York media, they're going to drive that point home a lot, and I think the Giants really have to hit this spot on. Otherwise, is going to be a huge ruckus, but I was really upset that Dave Gettleman really didn't stand on the table for Daniel Jones, and to make it seem as if he wasn't their top guy on their board, and I think he was because he kept saying how it was so hard to pass on Josh Allen, but you have to invest in the quarterback situation because Eli Manning is not the long-term solution there. Everybody knows that. He's entering the final year of his contract, so they had to get some fresh legs and some young legs in there in order to take over for him for the foreseeable future. So with Daniel Jones, there's going to be a lot of moving parts in there and I think the Giants have to nail the situation otherwise I think this situation could get really ugly and then with the Dexter Lawrence selection I thought it was a bit early for my liking I think they probably could have got him later on in the first round or in the early second round with their second round pick and I just don't think they had to take him that early and I know they wanted another base 3-4 defensive end or even a nose tackle in that front I know they already came out and said that Dexter Lawrence can play the one the three or the five depending on the front that they want to run or even the zero head up technique over the center so they really valued him highly but I just don't understand the decision making behind it because you really didn't go to bat for Snacks Harrison when you traded him to Detroit and you're bringing in a very similar player 
in Dexter Lawrence, a guy that's truly just a head-up nose tackle or a one technique in a four-down defensive front. So you really essentially just traded what you just spent a first-round draft selection on. So I just don't understand why you got minimal compensation back for Snacks Harrison and then you go and invest a first-round selection in the same exact player. I just didn't really understand the thinking behind that. But after that, I thought they really did well. DeAndre Baker, he's a guy that I valued at the top of the second round, and I think he's going to add some attitude to that secondary. And Janoris Jenkins isn't a long-term solution there. Everybody knows that. So bringing in the reigning Jim Thorpe Award winner, I think Baker is going to come in and make an immediate contribution to that secondary. Now, he has some long-speed questions as far as down the field when guys start to separate away from him. But in the short to intermediate areas, he really is dominant. And I think this is what the New York Giants secondary has been lacking and this is what they thought they were getting in Eli Apple before trading him to the New Orleans Saints. So with DeAndre Baker, O'Shane Zimenez, and even Julian Love, I think all those guys can come in and be day one contributors. Now, I think DeAndre Baker will play on the outside while Julian Love really mans the nickel position. I think he can be a near upper echelon talent in the slot. So their secondary got much improved even after losing Landon Collins this offseason. They bought in Jabril Peppers, who I think is going to end up being the team's strong safety, and also Antoine Bethea, who is going to be more in the free safety mold so this secondary got much better this offseason yes I know they lost Landon Collins who I think is a terrific player but I think they bought in some really good pieces as well to really fill in some holes that they were lacking so overall I think the Giants had a really good draft despite a lot of people disagreeing about the first two selections this team as a whole I think got much better this offseason they have their quarterback of the future in place in Daniel Jones they filled in some holes on their defense with Dexter Lawrence DeAndre Baker, Julian Love, O'Shane Zimenez, who probably can be eventual starters, I think, in long-term solutions at all those positions that they were lacking. So this team got much better, and we'll see where they do end up finishing in the NFC East. But I think they'll be much better than what they were a year ago. But again, it just once again falls on the shoulders of Eli Manning and how he can keep this thing afloat. And if that offensive line can keep him upright, we know Saquon Barkley is going to ball because he is a really good player. And him going with the second overall selection is a debate for another day. But as far as being an elite talent, he definitely is that. And the Giants have plenty of weapons on the perimeter to help, on the perimeter to help Eli Manning succeed. But if Eli cannot get the job done, that's where Daniel Jones is going to have to come in. And you don't take a player in the top ten to sit him three-plus years like Dave Gettleman was saying, and that's an unrealistic expectation. But if Daniel Jones doesn't take over this year, it definitely will happen in 2020. Transitioning to another team that I thought fulfilled their identity and how they want to build this team up, and that's the Minnesota Vikings. Their whole entire draft was centered around helping Kirk Cousins and providing him standing upright and giving him more weapons. And that started off right away, taking Garrett Bradbury with the 18th overall selection, a fit that everybody saw coming. And he was the 18th, he was slotted at the 18th pick in almost every single mock draft that I saw, including mine. And this is a fit that just made too much sense because Pat Elfline, there is some questions about him and just his long-term future with the team. He suffered a shoulder injury prior to last season, and he just didn't look like the same guy. And yes, I know he missed all of training camp and even the first few games of last season, but he played at a high level at guard at Ohio State, and that may be a position that better suits him just to take some of the pressure and some of the rigorous assignments off of him in that offense. 
And he can just transition to guard, a position that's much easier than center, in my opinion, just because you're not responsible with making so many protection calls, keeping your eyes up, and some of the fierce interior defenders in the NFC North with Hakeem Hicks, Kenny Clark, Mike Daniels, and a host of other guys as well. So Snacks Harrison is another great example as well. So there's a lot of really good players in the NFC North that Garrett Bradbury is going to be tasked with. But where he wins is with his athleticism and agility. So he's not going to maul guys off the ball. That's just not his game. But moving laterally, creating creases for Dalvin Cook, that's really where he wins. Pass protection still needs some work. But he's a guy that can get in the way, and he loves to strain and fight, which is something that Pat Elfline really struggled with. He just didn't have a lot of girth in his lower half and being able to stand in there and operate with that brute strength. And that's not an area where Bradbury does win either. But he stands in there and fights, and he he is way more athletic than what Pat Elfline does bring to the table. So Garrett Bradbury, I thought that was a terrific fit. And then they go back and give another weapon to the offense in Irv Smith Jr. And I know he's had a bit of an up-and-down pre-draft process, and he started a bit hot when coming into the combine, but his performance really was underwhelming from an athletic measurable standpoint. But from the on the field drills, that's really where Irv Smith Jr. really shined. And something you have to understand about Irv Smith Jr. is that he is very young, probably the youngest or one of the younger prospects in this entire draft. He doesn't turn 21 years old until August. And I think he is a great compliment to Cal Rudolph. And I know there's some rumors about Rudolph potentially being on the trading block, but I just don't think that's necessary because I think both of these guys skill sets complement each other really well as run blockers and most importantly as pass catchers which is where Kirk Cousins is going to utilize them in the passing game and Irv Smith has shown to be capable of being able to get open but one thing that I love that he brings to the table that Rudolph doesn't provide is yards after the catch and Rudolph is what I like to call a catch tackle guy and as soon as he catches the ball he really goes down with Irv Smith that is not the case he is looking to create the hidden yardage and yards after the catch and he feels as if he can score every single time he touches the ball so he's going to be an added asset from an inline position or even flexed out in this offense and I know there's still some questions with the Vikings in the number three overall receiver position but I think that's where Irv Smith Jr.'s role really comes in handy and he can be that third guy opposite of Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen in that rotation. And then what I loved is that they didn't stop addressing it after drafting Garrett Bradbury and Irv Smith Jr. Two of their next three picks came on the offensive side of the ball. And especially for a team that has a defensive identity, we haven't seen that in years past where they're just stocking up on offensive talent because they are a defensive-centric team. And that's really what their identity is. And that's the way Mike Zimmer wants it to be. But they take Alexander Madison, the running back out of Boise State, in the third round. And then they come back. And what was one of my favorite selections of the entire draft was Drew Samia, the guard from Oklahoma. He brings that added attitude that the offensive line really has been lacking since the Mike Zimmer, Rick Spielman era has really started. And there isn't just that nasty tone setter along the offensive front. And this is exactly what Drew Samia brings to the table. And what I love about the Samia selection is that he is a perfect fit in what the team wants to do. And this is another thing that goes back to the team's fit and perception. They want to be a zone scheme team that wants to move laterally and run a ton of outside zone just because that is Gary Kubiak and Kevin Stefanski's background. They want to run the ball laterally because that creates holes and creases for Dalvin Cook and the rest of the running backs in the Vikings backfield. So with that being said, they have the perfect two guys to do that and two of the better athletic profile guys in this draft 
when they're utilizing those types of concepts in Bradbury and Samia. So I really like what this team did, and I think the Vikings really got better after this weekend. Another team that really fitted the role and perception that they were trying to give off was the Arizona Cardinals, and I love how they just stockpiled on talent. They didn't necessarily have a type, but they knew that there were so many holes on this roster that they just needed to bring guys in the building. And what you're noticing is that they had a heavy offensive draft early on, but after that, they really started to take the best player available. At the top two rounds, you have Kyler Murray, who I think was one of the better prospects available in this class. He was a top five talent to me, and they needed a quarterback to run Cliff Kingsbury's system. And I, yes, I know Josh Rosen was already there, but he is not a better fit for what Cliff Kingsbury wants to do in that air raid type of offense. Kyler Murray is that dual threat type of guy that can create off script and he has experience in this type of offense because he has been running it even with his days back at Allen High School in Allen, Texas. He has been running the air raid offense so he was a much better fit in this type of offense than Rosen and what Kyler Murray really brings to the table is a guy that has that deep accuracy. He can create when things break down and we all know that Arizona does not have the best offensive front so you want to get a mobile guy that can really escape pressure just because Rosen wasn't able to do that in a ero in an eroding and decaying pocket last year and I know he was put in an unsuccessful situation and the odds were really stacked up against Rosen but I thought it was great that he got a fresh start in Miami but just stand on topic with the Arizona Cardinals then they come back and I think they take the best player available at the top of the board and Byron Murphy Andy Isabella is a controversial pick and there's been mixed opinions about him Hakeem Butler in the fourth round I think that was a huge steal but I think one of the biggest steals of their entire draft class was getting Lamont Galliard the center from Georgia in the sixth round and Brandon Thorne and myself have a podcast episode dating back a couple weeks ago talking about Galliard and that he's a guy that could be a plug and play option he was a part of one of the best offensive lines in the country at Georgia they do a terrific job there developing offensive lineman Isaiah Wynn uh, last year was another great offensive lineman that came out of that system that is probably going to have some, some success with the New England Patriots at left tackle this year so they are a proven commodity with the offensive line coming out of there with Galliard he's going to provide immediate competition maybe not to Mason Cole at center but any other spot maybe at left guard opposite of Justin Pugh so the, uh, the Cardinals really need talent in the building and I thought they did that and they by, they by far had one of the better drafts of any team in my opinion and they just took the best player available and they really built a really good wide receiver core because they just lacked talent outside of Larry Fitzgerald and Christian Kirk at those spots last year so you bring in Hakeem Butler Andy Isabella and Keyshawn Johnson was another great draft pick as well later on in the draft so I think what they lacked in talent last year I think they really combated that in this draft class and they brought in three guys that I think can be instant impact type of contributors and now whenever Larry Fitzgerald really wants to hang up his cleats I think they're in a really good situation and I'm not crowning these rookies right away because we all know receiver is one of those positions that is really impossible to project of how good or how much success a guy is really going to have translating right away even though we've seen some guys in years past step in right away and have that success I think they have a different variety of type of skill sets with guys that bring weapons to the table for Kyler Murray and with a team that had so many holes along their depth chart I think bringing all of these guys in immediately is going to help that team right away and the NFC West is really tough and I still think they are by far the worst team in that division but the Cardinals without question have one of the better drafts of any team of the NFL draft.
The last team that I want to talk about today that I really thought fitted their perception and the role that they want to give off to the rest of the league and drafting these players that really fit their persona of what they're trying to build. And that's the Buffalo Bills. And starting at the top with Ed Oliver, the the defensive tackle from Houston, I think the selection was terrific because they needed some help along the interior of their defensive line because they just didn't have anyone that had that high upside that could play any four positions along the interior defensive line, in my opinion, Ed Oliver can play nose tackle, defensive tackle, or even slide outside to defensive end at some times. And their interest in Ed Oliver has been well documented, even going all the way back to his pro day, where Ed Oliver was actually running his 40 and doing some drills, and he ended up running into Sean McDermott. So maybe it was just something that was meant to happen or destined to happen, and we just didn't know at the time. And I just love this fit. You pair Ed Oliver opposite of Harrison Phillips and Starla Tuile along that interior and also Jordan Phillips, a player that a lot of people really forgot about that they re-signed on a one-year deal. So I really like what they have along the interior. And then the second round pick with Cody Ford, the offensive tackle from Oklahoma. And there hasn't been a team around the NFL that has done a better job of surrounding their young quarterback with protection than the Bills. They've added so many guys, Spencer Long, Ty and Seki. The list goes on and on of the people that they have added to this offensive front. And I just love what they have done and what they have brought in to keep Josh Allen upright. And they've said that they want him to throw the ball a bit more this year and try to take some of the rushing load off from him. So you sign Frank Gore and then you go out and sign TJ Yelding and then you still draft a young running back and Devin Singletary, who is that young option opposite of these three or two older guys, I should say. Yeldon still is only 25 years old, I believe. So he is a bit of a younger option, but you have now your young running back and Devin Singletary, who reminds a lot of people of Frank Gore coming out. So I really love the mold and the tough blue collar mantra that they tried to build and there isn't a pick in this draft class that I disagreed with Dawson Knox in the third round was a great pick for Sean Joseph in the fifth round Jaquan Johnson in the sixth round which is a huge steal in my opinion Daryl Johnson from North Carolina A&T a player that a lot of people do not really know about but I think he's a really good project for them to develop maybe stash on the practice squad for a year or two gain some weight and then give him some more tools in the tool shed to work with as a pass rusher and develop as, develop him as a run defender. And I think they could have something maybe in 2021 or 2022 with Daryl Johnson. And then Tommy Sweeney as another backup option to Dawson Knox, even after signing Tyler Croft. And this is a depth chart that has so much depth from top to bottom. There really isn't, posi- there really isn't a position on their depth chart that really doesn't have a two to three deep man rotation. And then they get Tyree Jackson as an undrafted free agent, a guy that a lot of people thought would go midday two in the third or fourth round. So I really like what Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have done with this roster. And if you think back two to three years ago, this Bills depth chart was really starred for talent. And they didn't have much along the depth chart. And even a year ago, this is a team that a lot of people thought would only win three to four games. And that just didn't prove to be true last year. And now they have, of any team with a young quarterback, they have the brightest future. 
And they are just patiently waiting for this New England Patriots dynasty to eventually die down. But when this roster hits its peak, I think they are they are going to be firmly ready to take over in the AFC East. And they have as bright a future as any other team in that division, in my opinion. And I still think they may be a year away from being a playoff type of contender in the AFC. But as far as a team that has a bright future, I definitely think the Buffalo Bills are definitely up there with some of the best teams throughout the league. That was a really fun episode because that really was a topic that I thought about randomly about so many teams that really gave off the fit and the perception that they were trying to give off with these draft picks. The Baltimore Ravens were another team that really did give off a team that is trying to build around Lamar Jackson and just building a fast team around him. And Marquise Brown was a prime definition of that. Miles Boykin is another great example. So they're surrounding Lamar Jackson with all these as- with all these assets and all these fast type of weapons that are projects similar to what Lamar Jackson was. And they just want all of them to learn together. The Houston Texans, as I alluded to earlier, were another team. Detroit Lions were another team that's really trying to put together an experienced and blue-collar type of team. Will Harris, TJ Hawkinson. The list goes on and on of the names that they did draft there as well. So I thought that was one of the more interesting points about the draft that really wasn't talked about a lot. But with that being said, we are going to have a full draft recap starting with the NFC West on Friday. So we'll get to the Arizona Cardinals, the Los Angeles Rams, the Seattle Seahawks, and the San Francisco 49ers. We'll touch on every single one of those teams and on every single episode here going forward, we'll do a division by division recap because we have a long summer. We have plenty to talk about before we get to the 2020 draft class. I know some of y'all may be ready for me to get to that, but I'm still deciphering through a lot of these prospects that are on my 2020 database and list to get to. So before putting some false illusions out there about these guys and false perceptions about a lot of these prospects, I want to make sure I get through a lot of them, but a lot of y'all have noticed that I've already started putting up some Twitter clips, and I also will be recapping a lot of these draft classes on CoverOne.net. I'm doing a really good series called General Manager Speak, where I've looked at every single press conference from around the league and just talking about some quotes that really stuck out to me. And also, I do a pick-by-pick recap tagged along with those general manager quotes as well. So be sure to check that out on CoverOne.net. The Oakland Raiders, one should be up right now. I've already done the New York Jets, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Arizona Cardinals, and I eventually will get to all 32 teams. So, um, And I'm going in the first round draft order, so just be patient. I'm going to get to your team eventually. But with that being said, I am your host, Jordan Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at NFL. That's at J-R-E-I-D NFL. You can find my work on CoverOne.net. There's a lot of great draft stuff going on there. Russell Brown, Christian Page, and Alan Wu are definitely other guys that are doing terrific draft work over there as well. ClimbingThePocket.com, Miles Gorham, Yinka Allende, Jason Brown, and all of the other guys over there are doing terrific draft work as well. So be sure to check that out. But I want to thank you guys again for listening to the Draft Board Podcast. We will be back on Friday with an NFC West recap of the draft.